Good afternoon, everyone. This is Under the Surface, and you're tuned in to Valley Free Radio. This is WXOJLP, Northampton 103.3 FM. We're not only on the radio, but also live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And I'm Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me today. My guest for today has a very unique story to tell. As a young man, he spent two years of his life between 1966 and 1968 serving in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. But he did not serve in Vietnam as a soldier, as you might expect. Instead, he served in the United States Agency for International Development, or what was known as USAID, an arm of the State Department. USAID's mission was to, quote, win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people and to help their government more effectively respond to the needs of its citizens. And because he was not um, a soldier, his experience in Vietnam was very different. He describes these years as some of the most exciting and formative experiences of his youth. And yet, as a self-described progressive Democrat who was later to join anti-war demonstrations upon his return home to the U.S., he feels lots of contradictory feelings about that. And he reminded me, as uh, we were talking before the show, that we just had our, the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive this week. So this interview is very relevant. And uh, David is a Northampton resident and a longtime social justice activist. The focus of his activism and much of his professional life has been devoted to civil rights and the eradication of poverty and inequality in the U.S. and the world. David has had a varied professional career. He spent 10 years working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Anti-Poverty Agency. He was the deputy commissioner in the Department of Community Affairs and headed the Division of Social and Economic Opportunity. He then shifted gears completely and started a whole new career, serving as the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Holyoke Community College, and he retired in 2006. Since then, David has continued his work in the struggle for equality in a number of ways. If his name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you've seen it before in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, because he happens to be the leader of the Co-Housing Circle of Care, a group of volunteers who have dedicated their time to helping a refugee family settle into life in the U.S. and here in Northampton. David welcomed two Congolese refugee brothers, the Nagoys, to Northampton back in April. The Nagoys have since been joined by a third brother, and they anticipate the arrival of the rest of their family very soon. David is also deeply involved in the world of co-housing. He was one of the original inhabitants of the Rocky Hill co-housing community in Florence, Massachusetts. Co-housing, in case you don't know, is an intentional community made up of a group of private homes um, on shared land with shared living spaces, a place basically where neighbors can, can really get to know each other. And because I myself lived at Rocky Hill co-housing for a time, I was able to meet David and eventually learn of David's fascinating past in Vietnam. So without further ado, let me welcome him to the show. David, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, So David, from what I understand, you were in line to be drafted as a soldier in Vietnam, and you didn't want this at all. You sought um, an occupational deferment because of your anti-poverty work in the South. What happened that led you into working for USAID instead? Uh, Yes, uh, I had been in graduate school in Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina, and uh, for two years and got tired. I was in American history and was getting tired of looking at old dusty courthouse records. And an opportunity in the summer of uh, 1964 
uh, the governor, Terry Sanford, started a program for 100 volunteers to work in anti-poverty projects for that summer. Uh, and I decided to do that. And at the end of the summer, was worker offered uh, a full-time uh, job for a year starting the first rural anti-poverty program in the country. And my draft board in Jacksonville, Florida, said, hey, uh, you're not in school anymore, therefore you can be drafted. And the governor, Terry Sanford, appealed it to the North Carolina Appeals Board, which granted me an occupational deferment because he said the anti-poverty work that you're doing is very important uh, to the state of North Carolina. Uh, after a year, I returned to Jacksonville, was invited there to help develop the first anti-poverty program in Jacksonville, my hometown. Uh, and there the draft board again said, oh, you're, you're, in, you're here now, and in fact, uh, we, we will reclassify you 1A, which means to be drafted. Uh -oh. And interestingly, the mayor said, hey, he sent his chief aide to go meet with the draft board to say, hey, we need this guy to help us in our city. But it was interesting because the draft board was just ordinary citizens, and the chief aide was a very political person. And he looked at these four or five people, and he didn't know any of them. Uh, and he couldn't influence them politically, which I think he probably wanted to do. In any case, uh, they turned the mayor down, uh, and I was classified 1A. And I said, well, I guess I have to serve my country in some other way. And I felt that uh, the work I had been doing in community development uh, could be more used to the United States uh, than my uh, carrying around a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't particularly uh, eager to engage in wartime violence. Right. And basically, I applied to the Agency for National Development that was recruiting staff to work in Vietnam. Uh, and I was accepted uh, and went to... Uh, Washington for a few weeks of training. They had promised me six weeks of language training in Hawaii, but by then they were desperate to have more people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I did not get the language training oh. that I wish I had. Uh -huh. uh, and within uh, a month, I was on the ground in Kwangnai province. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you've explained that the stated mission of U.S. aid in Vietnam was, quote, to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people and to help their government more effectively respond to the needs of their citizens. How did you feel at, that, at the time about going there to do this work? Well, it sounded like a, a reasonable idea to try to do it. It's interesting. Nowadays, we call this nation building. Mm -hmm. And uh, some uh, politicians have said, we're not nation building anymore. Right. And one reason is, how do you do that for another nation? Right. Like nation. with the whole Iraq situation. Exactly. Uh, and Afghanistan as yeah. well. Uh, clearly, uh, mm -hmm. the, the local people have to do it. Yeah. Uh, but the idea was that uh, the... People, if they felt the government was democratic and it was responding to their wishes, was helping make the country a better place uh, and was ruled by the rule of law, uh, that then people would be more supportive of the government, in this case in South Vietnam, mm -hmm. and therefore less likely to be attracted by the Viet Cong mm -hmm. uh, that were the so-called communists, right. uh, the other side of the war. Right. And how did you feel about the Vietnam War in general at that time? Did you believe that it was a necessary war? Did you believe in the communist threat? 
I can't say I did. I was skeptical, but I was open-minded. Uh, I didn't know. I just know what I read in newspapers. It was quite varied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I felt, well, maybe there's something to this threat. At the same time, I was skeptical, but I felt I, this was a way to serve my country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right. and I was young, and so I went there. Yeah. And um, so I, I know you said you were in, you were stationed in Kuang Nagai. Is that how I pronounce Kuang it? Kuang Nai. Nai. N G A I. But you don't but pronounce the G. Okay. Not so much. And you were in the fifth province down from the demilitarized zone. What sort of work in general were you doing? Uh, or I guess, I mean, or maybe I really want to know in particular, what were you doing? Well, the main thing I did, my title was assistant provincial representative, and there was a senior State Department. Uh, official on loan to AID, who was the provincial representative, and I was the assistant provincial representative. And my job was to work with the various provincial uh, agencies, government agencies, to try to make them to respond. Uh, Some good examples would be uh, I would go out with a province chief or a district chief to go meet with people uh, in particular villages and hamlets and talk to them what are your problems? What are your mm-hmm. needs? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'd say, well, we really need a well to get water, or we need a school classroom, or we need a new village office. Uh, and we were there to say, hey, we can help. Mm-hmm. We can provide uh, cement to mm-hmm. build it. We can provide roofing sheet to put uh, to make the roof and so forth. So that's where our role came in, mm-hmm. to encourage the government to respond to the citizens mm-hmm. and to help the government uh, do that. Yeah. And you have some really surprising stories. Um, I know that when you arrived in Vietnam, you replaced the man who was serving there, as you mentioned, uh, uh, as assistant provincial representative, and he gave you his combat boots and his M1 rifle. What happened? Right. Well, it, it turned out the combat boots fit me, which was great because they're in the rainy season. It was very muddy, and these were very functional boots. The rifle is a, really a funny story because I said, oh, here's this rifle. It was an M1, uh, which is an automatic rifle that the troops were using. And so I said, well, what did I do with it? I kept it by my bedside mm-hmm. every night saying, well, if the Viet Cong ever broke, broke in here, I can defend myself and I can get up and shoot them if I have to before they shoot me. Well, it was interesting. As I said, when the Tet Offensive came, this was more than a year and a half later, uh, somebody made the decision, hey, these civilians may have to defend themselves and let's get them out on rifle range. So I took my M1 and went out to this training they were having and I put the, the gun up, mm-hmm. aimed at the target, and pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. And nothing happened. Mm-hmm. It turned out all that time I never knew how to operate the gun. So, so it wasn't <laughs> that the gun malfunctioned. It was that you... Uh, yes, apparently you got to do more than pull the trigger <laughs> to get it going. <laughs> I would have thought you just pulled the trigger. Uh, okay, that's what I, I thought, because okay. I had no experience with guns uh, prior to that, except as a teenager in Florida, I'd had a a BB gun right. when I was 13. So that means that for two years, you really had no way to protect yourself directly. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, although is... we, li- we lived in uh, you know walled compounds mm-hmm. and did have a, a guard on the outside. Right. One uh, guard with a gun. Right? Uh-huh. 
Wow. But it, so they decided to really check into it. Uh, so you say that's a funny story, but that um, it's almost, probably only funny because it ended well, right? Yes, yeah. right. But it was funny that I yes. thought all this time right. I had this uh, gun that I could use to yeah. protect myself if I needed yeah. to and then uh-huh. found out right. if I'd ever tried to use it, obviously uh-huh. I yeah. didn't know how. And you had a number of very intense experiences while working in Kwong Nai uh, for USAID. Can you tell me about some of them? I know one involved a wounded Vietnamese civilian. Yes, actually my first uh, full day there, uh, I got a call to go out to the provincial airport. They were delivering some school supplies that we were going to give to the local uh, Ministry of Education. And uh, so I drove out there and some people ran up to me and said, hey, can you take this very badly wounded civilian man to the provincial hospital. And I knew where the hospital was because it was right across the street from the house where I was living. So I said, sure. So they put him in the back of my scout, uh, the General Motors scout vehicle that I had, and I drove into town. But the the roads were not good. They were very bumpy. And this poor guy was moaning. Mm -hmm. And every time we hit a bump, I'd hear a louder moan. And I was thinking, will he make it? I hope he doesn't die Mm -hmm. in my vehicle while I'm driving him. Fortunately, he did make it to the hospital. And I delivered him there. Uh, And I don't know what happened after that. I certainly hoped he lived. How do you think, I mean, how was he injured from like a mine or something? I I don't know, but I'm I'm sure it was a war injury. War injury, Uh, There were lots of, you know, there was napalm, there were Mm -hmm. bombs, there were Mm -hmm. rifles, all kinds of uh, ways to get injured. Yeah. Um, And I know since you shared living quarters with a doctor and a nurse who worked in that hospital, uh, you were very aware of the large numbers of wounded and dying civilians. Yes. um, uh, As part of my job, I wouldn't normally know what the military operations were in our province or where they were happening. But in fact, because of the uh, civilians that would be wounded and would be coming into the hospital, the... uh, the nurse and the doctor who were in contract with AID who shared the house with me would say, oh, they're all coming from so-and-so today. And then I knew that must be where a military mm-hmm. operation was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so these were just Viet- these were Vietnamese civilians, that's not, right. not wounded soldiers. The, yes, okay. Vietnamese mm-hmm. civilians. Yeah, right. Because this was the only civilian hospital mm-hmm. uh, in this province. This province had uh, 750,000 people. Mm-hmm. It was the fourth most populous of the 44 provinces in South Vietnam and had this one civilian hospital. Right. Something else I might add that was interesting uh, is that the hospital had a special ward just for plague cases and another one for cholera Uh cases. Uh And it turns out we had one quarter of the cases of plague in the world Mm -hmm. were recorded in our hospital. Mm -hmm. And the reason, of course, was there was an American captain, a doctor, who was working there who recorded all the cases, oh. whereas I'm sure there are many other cases yeah. around the world that nobody was recording them. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, but it's interesting yeah. that one quarter of the cases in yeah. the world of plague, uh-huh. again, you associate that with Black Death in the 16th century yeah. in Europe, yeah. but plague, was unfortunately, was uh. alive and well And to think there. that people were dying of the plague while this war was going on. This yes, just, and uh, cholera, too, yeah. of course. Yeah. I actually had a plague shot. 
before oh. I went over there, believe it or not. Oh, I didn't I even did. know they had plague I didn't shots. either. Yeah. <laughs> so you witnessed um, some horrifying war scenes. Um, you, you mentioned in what I've read, what you gave me to read, even from helicopters. Can you share some of the ones that linger with you today? Yes, the, the one that was most vivid. Actually, we used to fly to Da Nang or fly to uh, Saigon on what was Air America. It was contracted to AID, and there were usually six passenger planes, small planes. Uh, and I was one day I was flying, I think, from Saigon up to Da Nang, the regional headquarters, and it was a perfectly clear day, beautiful, sunny, looking down at the tropical landscape, and I'm looking down, you could see for miles, and I see here, there's a lovely little Vietnamese village, and I see these two American planes come, go down almost to it, and then sort of let go of something and then take off afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I see these two big explosions that came from these two planes, and I see these thatched huts basically lit on fire, and I saw civilians running outside. Mm-hmm. And it was so surreal just yeah. to be sitting there like I was watching a movie or mm-hmm. something. But in fact, it was so real, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the it was vantage so horrifying. point. You were in a yes, helicopter. I could just see it from a distance, but mm-hmm. I could see it rather clearly, and that image is still in my mind today. Yeah, that's kind of a traumatic image. I mean, yes. Yeah, um, and let's see. You mentioned that some of the work you did for USAID got destroyed by war. Can you describe yes, that? Yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting trying to do constructive work right. in the midst of a war, which in fact is totally destructive. And a couple of classic cases, uh, we worked for like a year and a half to bring rural electrification to five different uh, hamlets that never had uh, electri- electricity. Right. And I thought, oh, this is great. We're bringing electricity. The government's responding. Uh, within three months, the Viet Cong had blown up all five of those sites. Wow. So that showed, boy, all the work we're doing, it's so easy to destroy it. Mm-hmm. Another example was a school that we had just helped build. The Viet Cong were hiding out in it, mm-hmm. so the Americans sent a plane and bombed the school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because the Viet Cong were was the school out in populated? I, oh, well, the Viet Cong was there, but were there yeah, any children the, or anything? Not at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, well, just the Viet thing. Cong were hanging mm-hmm. out there, so mm-hmm. the children weren't going to school that day. Right, right. Wow, how did that must have been very strange? Like that you'd spend all this work and then just to see it. Yeah. Well, it, it also like led me to believe this effort isn't going to succeed very well. Right. Uh, seeing right. all, you know, thinking we're doing all these good things that yeah. don't last very long. Yeah, and that brings me to another question. I'm wondering, how did the South Vietnamese people respond to your presence? Were they welcoming? On the whole, people were very friendly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, I remember one time we, we drove for a, a good distance, and then we got out and took boats across a river to reach this particular hamlet. And we walked up, and I was the only uh, Westerner <laughs> there. And little children would run up to me and sort of feel my arms just because there was sort of more hair on my arms than most mm-hmm. uh, Asian men have. Yeah. And I'm sure I must have been the first uh, Westerner they had ever seen in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it was strange. And also, because I'm relatively tall, mm-hmm. six one and a half. 
uh, and they were much shorter yeah. than I. And I must have seen there's this white giant coming here. Yeah. So uh, you could see they were staring at me just because I look so different. But at the same yeah. time, they were welcoming. And I remember this particular village. It was a very hot day. And a couple of young guys ran up literally a palm tree. I, how you could do that, I don't know. But with their mm -hmm. arms and legs, mm -hmm. they ran up the palm tree, a coconut palm, and got, cut down some fresh coconuts, mm -hmm. brought them down, sliced them in half, and gave us to drink the coconut milk. Mm -hmm. Which was very nice, and it was cool and very, very good on a hot day. On a hot day, yeah. So again, people were friendly and welcoming on the whole. Yeah, you brought back memories from, that I've had because I traveled through Vietnam, as I told you, and I remember feeling like a big giant walking around. You know, because uh, I would wear, you know, could fit into a man's medium-sized shirt while I was there, and I also saw people climbing the, the coconut tree. What you're describing, so. Um, yeah, so it, it, one thing was interesting. I remember being in Saigon, and this Cyclo driver, that's, you know, pedicab, yeah, yeah. came running up to me and gave me a big hug and said, I love America. And I said, we bombed the hell out of you. Why do you like America? Oh, this is when you came back. Yes, when I, I came back yeah. in the, in the uh -huh. 90s. Wow. Uh, what did he visit. say? Yeah. Well, what? He still he, he couldn't speak much English, but uh -huh. that's what he was saying basically. I, yeah, I, so I was totally surprised. Yeah, I had a very good reception too. Yes. You know, as an American, uh, which was surprising. Although interestingly, I, I that time I did go to Hanoi, and I did find the people in the south were friendlier oh. than the people in the north. Yeah, I don't know if you reached uh -huh. that conclusion or not. Yeah, either. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I know also Hanoi is a busy city, so there's you know that element too. But Saigon is busier. That's true. And busier point. and bigger. Good point. Yeah. So, um, did you feel that you were doing good work in Vietnam and that your work was valuable? Like, obviously, there were some things that you know were completely destroyed by war. But do you feel something was left behind in the long term that was of value? Well, I think the people I personally interacted with. Mm -hmm. uh, could say, gee, I have a good feeling about at least one American and probably yeah. others. Uh -huh. So in, in that sense, I do. Yeah. Uh, and I know we had a number of young uh, you know, high school students who, who were learning English and served as interpreters for us, and we had a relationship with them. Uh -huh. And my chief interpreter, his name was Ho Khan, uh, who was probably age 40, had been a high school teacher mm -hmm. and told stories about the Viet Minh who were uh, sort of the predecessors right. to the Viet Cong, had been very uh, popular in this particular province, and that he had to hide the fact that he was educated and act like he oh. was a poor uh -huh. uh, peasant uh -huh. and couldn't show any signs of education, even though he was a high school teacher that was a mm -hmm. position of some status or uh -huh. prestige because of that. So hearing his story and getting to know him... Mm -hmm. uh, was nice, and and some officials would invite me over for a meal uh, and to meet their family. So there were those personal relationships that were, for me, quite rewarding. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is a good time to take a brief musical break, and then uh, we'll have some messages. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back soon. Yeah, no. 
Okay, we're back. Thanks for tuning in. This is Under the Surface on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ Northampton at 103.3 FM. We just heard a very appropriate song for our conversation that was called Vietnam by Jimmy Cliff. I'm Amy Landau, and my guest today is David Enton, who spent two years of his life between 1966 and 1968 during the Vietnam War, working for the U.S. Agency for International Development, also known as USAID, an arm of the State Department where he had had some extremely unique experiences that left a lifelong impact on him on many different levels. So, David, let's get back to our conversation, shall we? Sure. Yeah. So you you've had some uh, you have some beautiful memories of the Vietnamese countryside while working for USAID, such as the green rice paddies and the small children walking with the gray water buffaloes in the field. What else do you remember about that area where you were stationed, and what do you notice about the Vietnamese people and culture? Well, I, most Americans, I worked Monday through Friday and had the weekends off, and I had a vehicle. Uh, so I was able to drive around and really in areas that were considered safe at the time and really observe uh, the countryside. It was basically a rural uh, country uh, at that time. Most people lived in rural areas, and it was very beautiful. The, the Watching the progression of the growing of rice, starting out in rice paddies that were flooded, uh, and then they were transplanted, and then the water would be taken out, and then the rice would be harvested. Uh, again, it was all using very, never saw a tractor. Uh, <laughs> the, for plowing, they used the big gray water buffalo, and sometimes little kids behind them with a little stick moving the buffalo mm-hmm. on, if you will. You're right. Uh, it was very beautiful, and mm-hmm. I, I was very impressed as this, I'm sure for a thousand years they had been doing it the same way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Even watching the ways that they had to get the irrigation water from uh, a canal up to the level of the rice paddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Either they had buffalo walking around in a circle pulling up uh, like a ladder the mm-hmm. water up, or they did it by hand with two people on either side of the canal uh, with ropes attached to a bucket. They pull it up one bucket at a time. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, by our standards, that's pretty inefficient, mm-hmm. uh, but that's the the way they were doing it. Yeah. Uh, I, I also mentioned there uh, that on Sundays, the Boy Scouts would be out, mm-hmm. and they had three different kinds based on the three major religions. So they had the Buddhist Scouts, and that was uh, by far the largest uh, religion in Vietnam, and they had the Catholic Scouts, and they had the Cao Dai Scouts. Cao Dai is sort of a native uh, sect mm-hmm. in in Vietnam that sort of a, has some elements of Buddhism and some elements mm-hmm. of Christianity. And they all had different uh, scarfs, all mm-hmm. three, so you could tell one from the other. I don't remember the colors now. Mm-hmm. But they'd be marching up and down and doing their Boy Scout thing, sometimes trying to to build uh, housing for refugees, for example. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you say the Boy Scouts, uh, was it sort of the equivalent, the Vietnamese equivalent of what we think of as Oh, the yes, Boy exactly. They had okay. uniforms that looked like our uh-huh. Boy Scout uniforms. But it wasn't actually started by the Boy Scouts that, that uh, from the U.S. or anything like that. It was... Uh, or I doubt that. Yeah. It probably came from the French. Oh, that's a good uh, point. Because they had yeah, a French the colony. French colonies, right. yeah. Um, and you also had to get around by helicopter a lot, as you mentioned. Yes, right? because uh, 
this uh, again I mentioned the 44 provinces sort right. of like states and each province was divided into districts mm-hmm. sort of like counties right uh, and our province had 10 districts and I could only drive to four of those that is safely the other six were not considered safe so to go to the the district capital I'd have to go by helicopter mm-hmm. and for <clears throat> for uh, more than half a year uh, I was given the job on Wednesdays. We were given an Air America helicopter. My job was to plan the use of this. Mm-hmm. So we would, uh, I'd get in and tell them where to go. Mm-hmm. I'd say, so we're going to so-and-so uh, district, and they'd go up and over and then straight down. Uh, and then we'd pick up people or deliver supplies, uh, whatever the case. And it was interesting. This province went all the way, and all the northern ones did, in north part of South Vietnam, went all the way from the South China Sea or the Pacific Ocean to Laos. Uh, and the four uh, western districts in this province were all in the mountains mm-hmm. and, in fact, were populated by what the French had called Montagnards. Mm-hmm. And these were quite different people. Mm-hmm. They looked different. They were mm-hmm. more Polynesian, I would say, mm-hmm. slightly darker skin, uh, looked different from the Vietnamese mm-hmm. who basically had immigrated or migrated down from China over the past uh, 2,000 years mm-hmm. who were basically of a Chinese culture whereas the Montagnards were quite different and they were dressed differently. So even in the streets of the provincial capital, uh, Quang Nai City, you could tell who was a Montagnard and who wasn't. Were they like the, were they, were they the indi- indigenous residents, sort of like um, the yes. Hmong people in yeah. Thailand, I guess? Uh, yes, or, to uh, some extent, yeah. you, you could mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, even in the 20th century, the, uh, as the, the, the Chinese-based or Vietnamese people moved mm-hmm. south into the Delta, they basically chased out the Khmers, mm-hmm. who were the Cambodian people, oh, okay. interestingly. Yeah. So it oh. took 2,000 years, basically, uh-huh. for these people from South China to occupy the length of Vietnam. Uh-huh. And um, you've said that while you were in Vietnam, you didn't give much thought to your safety, which is hard to believe. <laughs> Can you explain? Well, it's just I, I'm not a person that's into safety issues, unlike Mm-hmm. Many people I know. Mm-hmm. As an example, a week and a half ago, I was in Costa Rica and I went zip lining for the first oh, time in my life. Oh, for you. And at age 77, uh-huh. maybe that's considered uh-huh. daring. I don't know, but uh-huh. I enjoyed it. It was great fun. And it worked out. I like out. roller coasters, so <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I just have this view of they're going to get you, they're going to get you. Uh-huh. And huh. hopefully they won't. And uh-huh. they didn't. Yeah. And so uh, I know you were promoted to a higher position and uh, while you were in Vietnam. Um, and you moved to Da Nang, uh, further north and much closer to the DMZ, where you reported uh, to a, a senior civilian official referred to as the ambassador, he said. And your main job then was to write monthly reports on the civilian side of the war. But you also got to read CIA reports. So I'm curious about that. What did you find out, or can you share that? <laughs> I'm sure I can now, 50 years later. But it was certainly uh, interesting. Yes, I... Uh, I had three different supervisors when I was in Vietnam. All were on loan to AID from the State Department. Mm-hmm. So they had all been diplomats in various posts around the world. Uh, and because of the war there, they were sent there by the State Department on loan to AID. Uh, and, in fact, they wanted me to make a career 
of the State Department uh, and said they'd support that. But then I began to realize if you're going to work for the State Department, it means your job is to advocate for the foreign policy mm-hmm. of the United States. And I'm not sure I could necessarily agree with it mm-hmm. and many times. And, of course, many times I've disagreed with it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I decided not to take up their offer to make a career mm-hmm. in the State Department. But I was promoted after 13 months to this position called Regional Reports Officer. And that was Region 1. Vietnam was divided into four regions. Uh, and Region 1, or i as it was called, was the five uh, most northern provinces in South Vietnam up to the DMZ or the demilitarized uh, zone. And my job every month was to to read the provincial reports, uh, not only the AID reports, but also uh, the military reports and particularly the CIA reports, which I had never seen before, which were certainly uh, very interesting. Uh, I was impressed that the CIA people knew what was going on politically and could talk about the different political parties and who was supporting whom and who was against them. Uh, But the most surprising thing to me was seeing their budget and the number of people they had on the payroll in each province. And it was hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And I said, how could they have so many people on their payroll? Mm -hmm. And I began to realize, well, they they were paying people as spies to give them information. Paying Vietnamese people? Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. so that to find out what was going on, Mm -hmm. uh, if you will, and maybe to report on neighbors who might be Viet Cong. I Mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, that was certainly surprising to me. Yeah, and I wonder if that was why, you know, it seemed like some people justified some of the bad things that happened or, you know, killing of civilians by saying that some of them were informants or spies. Well, in that case, it would be the Viet Cong killing them. But also, did uh, our side kill people who were reported to be Viet Cong agents? Well, that's what... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah was, I see what you're saying. Both sides. <laughs> yeah, both right? sides. We're killing each other. Right. Um, and so you were actually in Vietnam during the infamous Tet Offensive launched by the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese People's Army on January 30th, 1968, which shocked the U.S. public, that campaign of surprise military attacks coordinated throughout South Vietnam. Where were you exactly when the Tet Offensive occurred, and what do you remember about it? Well, I was not I wasn't. Believe it or not, a few days before the Tet Offensive, I'd gone to, to Saigon and flown out of Tan Sanut, which is the main commercial airport in Saigon, uh, to Hong Kong, where my wife met me. And we had a week's oh. vacation in Hong Kong, and then we, we saw and read about. The, so you were out of the country. Yes, wow. I wasn't there then. Uh-huh. But then I realized, gee, I need to go back. But because of the attack, they closed the airport in Saigon, so I couldn't get the flight that I was scheduled to return on. Mm -hmm. So I just went out to the Hong Kong airport and saw an American military plane and basically hitched a ride. Mm -hmm. I showed them my official passport, and they said, and I said, where are you going? And they said, Da Nang. I said, that's where I want to go. So I said, oh, we'll give you a ride. On the, you hitched a ride on an American military plane. Yes, an Air wow. Force plane. That sounds really But the funniest thing was, what was on that plane, They in the middle of the Tet Offensive, they had flown up there to pick up hi-fi stereo equipment. And I'm wondering, why are they doing this in the middle of the war? But 
not my question to ask. That is very strange. <laughs> wow. right. But anyway, I got back, and immediately my job to Da Nang was to find out what was happening mm-hmm. in the in the other in the five provinces of uh, the, that was Region One. Uh, and I, in the next couple of weeks, I, I managed to visit each of those particular provinces to see firsthand what had happened. And in fact, it had been a serious. Uh, setback mm-hmm. uh, for the American effort. Even in Quang Nai province that I knew so well, uh, the Viet Cong had even come into the most secure districts. Now, granted, they were beaten back, but the fact that they had been able to do that in such a brazen way uh, was clearly uh, a major, uh, if nothing else, a, mm-hmm. a publicity clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Blunder. <laughs> well, uh, uh, it, it was a coup yeah. for the uh, North Vietnamese oh, or, right. or for yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Viet Cong, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I was there. so basically uh, writing up the monthly report. I reported we had major setback, mm-hmm. uh, and what was interesting, the report after I wrote it, it was reviewed by my supervisor who was we called the ambassador because he had been an ambassador and a, a country in Africa before that. Uh, and then it was signed off by the top Marine general in I-Corps, uh, who was a two or three-star Marine general. And this was immediately sent up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, two days later, we got a cable from the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying, what's this setback? Please explain. And so the ambassador called me into his office and said, Dave, you got to understand these people, you can't report a setback. He says, I know you were right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it was a setback. But the military, they're just here a year on a tour of duty, and they have to show progress or they won't get promoted. Mm -hmm. So that basically, to me, uh, sort of summarized the problem one of the major problems of Vietnam, mm-hmm. and if you've seen the, uh, you know, the Pentagon Papers, and mm-hmm. I saw the the Post mm-hmm. about the Washington Post publicizing the new the movies. papers. Yes, mm-hmm. the movie on Friday night mm-hmm. uh, that also makes clear, you know, how basically the leaders of the the government were misleading the the American public, mm-hmm. and they were perhaps misled by the generals mm-hmm. who kept reporting progress oh, when there wasn't progress. Yeah, and this to me was a, a key example of in a, in a simple way. Yeah, when I report a setback and I'm called on the carpet for telling the truth. Yeah, and my boss realizes I was right, uh-huh. but. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, and it surprises me that on that level, they were telling you, don't say this. It's almost like they didn't want to be the ones to lie, so they wanted you to lie. Yes. So that they wouldn't, the generals wouldn't have to lie for the public. Right. So it's it's just weird to think of that. There's like a chain of that, you know, that it goes down to your the level you were working on. Right. I wouldn't think that they would expect you to be dishonest, you know. Well, and I wouldn't be, and right? I, and I wasn't. But, right, you weren't. Yeah. Right, but it was interesting just to see. Did you have to redo that, that report, or just no, not mention any no, setbacks after no, that point? No. Yeah. Well, and again, the Viet Cong were beat back in every case. Yeah. But in the city of Hue, that was in our uh, in our uh, region, uh-huh. uh, the Viet Cong held this parts of the city of Hue for almost a month, mm-hmm. and this was the old ancient imperial city. Mm-hmm. So that was an incredible. 
mm-hmm. uh, effort, the, the fact that the Viet Cong were able, and the North Vietnamese Army were mm-hmm. able to do that. Right. Again, it's interesting because, uh, again, Ken Burns' uh, series on Vietnam mm-hmm. on PBS really shows how this was a turning point. Mm-hmm. To the Americans, it was, oh, look, we beat them all back. Mm-hmm. It showed we're in control. Mm-hmm. No problem. Mm-hmm. But to, to everybody else in the world, wow, if they can do that, mm-hmm. uh, who's really winning this war? And just the loss of life, you know. Yes. Incredible But I think both life. the loss of life and the Tet Offensive mm-hmm. were the turning point where the American public began to see hey, they're saying there's progress, how could this happen? Mm-hmm. And this is where I think, the, again, the public turned and uh, the anti-war demonstrations really picked up uh, at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, l- let me tell you one other story. Yeah, go ahead. It's a funny one because I knew the uh, system provincial representative in Hue, Mm-hmm. In the Tuatuan province, uh, I had known him when he came in and briefed him, uh, and then sent him up there. He was a young African American guy, and believe it or not, his name was Thomas Jefferson. Oh, uh, yes, that was his name, and he was from Virginia. Uh-huh. Oh. But a really nice guy, and AID had hired him to be an assistant provincial rep. And he told me the story that uh, when the Viet Cong basically took over Way, he went and hid in the famous Perfume River of uh, Hue, mm-hmm. uh, under some reeds were the Oh, and you're talking straw. about Hue, H-U-E. Yeah, right. H-U-E. Okay, okay. Hue, the name Hue. of the city, Hue. Okay. Yes, uh-huh. and because that's where he was stationed, but okay. the Viet Cong came in, so he jumped in the river, and for three days, Hue hid under, uh, you know, sort of some lily pads in the river wow. using a straw to breathe. Oh my and goodness. finally, you know, the part was clear and he was able to get out and they flew him to Da Nang and I met him and talked to him about this horrendous experience. He'd been through and we said, we got to get you out of here. You need a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. So I called my wife and said, we're sending Tom over there. Meet him, please, and help him. Now, <laughs> how long just, was he in that river? Something like three days. That's insane. I, well, look, if you don't want to get shot, it's a good yeah, place to hide. <laughs> I hope he had something to put his feet on, or not, you know, you oh, yeah, doggy well, paddle. It wasn't necessarily a deep river. Right, I, I right. don't know, but uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's what a story. Right, but anyway, yeah. it was a rather dramatic mm-hmm. story. Definitely. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about My Lai. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? My Lai. My Lai. Yes. Uh, My Lai was also in your province in South Vietnam, and this was the place where hundreds of innocent Vietnamese civilians were murdered by U.S. Army soldiers on March 16, 1968. Um, so was that during your time in Vietnam? Oh, yes, it was. I, actually, I wasn't in Quang Nai that time, mm-hmm. but I didn't know about this until I read about you know a couple of years later when it came out, and there was a trial, you may remember, of Lieutenant Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, who was in charge and who was basically convicted, mm-hmm. and I think given some jail time. Uh, but the fact that I didn't even know about this. But did you know that there had been, you know, a military operation there? Because, I mean, it, it basically it was investigated and then, you know, determined that this was a massacre. Right. No, I didn't know a thing about wow. it. Wow, okay. Yeah. Again, this was a, uh, in the part of the district that was never safe and secure. I'd never been there. Right. But just knowing that this happened mm-hmm. <laughs> in this province that yeah. I knew so well yeah. uh, was rather... Uh, 
frightening. I mean, you were hearing the sounds of like warfare a lot, though, around. Yes, you. it's interesting. At night, you, you'd hear the sounds, uh, you know, of, of uh, guns going off, mortars, particularly. Mm-hmm. And after a while, people would say, "Oh, that's outgoing. It's not incoming." And oh. so you need to worry if it's uh-huh. incoming, it's coming towards you. Uh-huh. If it's outgoing, well, it's going away from you. Wow, I never <laughs> thought about that. Right. Yeah. So I, I learned to distinguish between yeah. incoming and outgoing a big mortars. Yeah. Right. Um, and I know that when you returned to the U.S., um, you participated in a number of anti-war demonstrations. Did you know you were, you were uh, I guess I sort of touched on this before, about how whether you were a felt that the war was wrong going in. Um, and, but, I mean, did you start, did you feel that while you were still in Vietnam? It sounds like you did in terms of the whole Tet Offensive thing, what you described. Yes, you, yes. You saw this, this hypocrisy going on. Yes, and, and what we were doing, uh, one, I didn't think we were making progress, and two, it be, became clearer and clearer we shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. And again, recently I heard somebody de- declare some, um, you know, politician that this was the worst foreign policy mistake in American history, Mm -hmm. and certainly one of the worst, no doubt about it. We shouldn't have been there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't know much about Vietnam. Uh, Let me give you another example. When I was first there, I went out to the airport, and they sent us 100 uh, audiovisual machines to put in the local schools. Mm -hmm. Sound like a good idea. Somebody in Washington decided we'll send these out. And guess what? They were all on 110 electricity. Mm-hmm. And in, Viet- in Vietnam, they only had 120. Oh. And not only that, none of the schools had electricity. Right. So they sat in the warehouse the mm-hmm. whole time. Uh-huh. Again, that was just one of you know, many examples of you know, not knowing what we were really doing, didn't uh-huh. know the country well, yeah. shouldn't have been there. What about the whole like communist threat um, rhetoric and that was going on? Was there a point where... Um, I mean, where you sort of bought into that in the beginning and then your feelings changed? I'm not sure I fully bought into it, but I certainly was aware of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, And obviously the communists would have destroyed us if they Mm -hmm. could Mm -hmm. or destroyed, maybe taken over our government, what have you. I'm not sure. I don't think it ever would have happened. Mm -hmm. But uh, obviously uh, we were adversaries in the Cold War. And I think the Cold War was, was real. At the same time, I read enough of Vietnamese history, and I started reading it when I was there, to realize that, in many ways, Ho Chi Minh was the George Washington mm-hmm. of his country. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted independence. He yeah. fought to get independence from France. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what do we do? <laughs> we decide to support, you know, not Ho Chi Minh, uh, and we could have, mm-hmm. obviously, and maybe he would have a good, a good Democrat with mm-hmm. a small D, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. it may have pushed him to the left, if you will, politically. Yeah. I read an article about what young Vietnamese people are taught about the Vietnam War, or they call it the American War, or the Resistance yes. War, yeah. that some one of them said, oh, that was a war to, for the America to give us back to France, something that's what they were saying. That's sort of how they thought of it, or, or the way it was taught to them. Well, in some so ways, it was... Yeah. In, 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 continuing a pattern yeah. of imperialism, yeah. of occupation yeah. by foreign troops. Mm-hmm. And you've also said that despite the tragic mistake of, of the Vietnam War, the fact that it was a terrible chapter in American history that shouldn't have happened, your personal experience there, just as we've been talking about 
through working for USAID was exhilarating. How do you reconcile those two feelings? I know it's hard to say, but I was young. I wanted to travel. I wanted to see some foreign lands. And I was just enthralled by this gorgeous country and these wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being there was, in fact, exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, the U.S. government never should have been there. Right. Um, and let's see. I also want uh, to ask you, uh, I know you saw the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War, which I have yet to see. What did you think of that? Did, I w- it, did I w- it open I w- your eyes up to something, things you didn't know? or? I can't say I learned much new, but I will say I was very moved by it, and I felt it was very accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it really showed how we got in there and how even going back to Truman mm-hmm. and then Eisenhower and then Kennedy and then Johnson and then Nixon, mm-hmm. you know, five presidents in a row uh, continuing uh, to build up our involvement there. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, at the height of the Vietnam War, when I was there, there were 568,000 American troops there, mm-hmm. a country of only 13 million people. Yeah, I mean, the most we ever had in Iraq was 160,000, mm-hmm. a country of 25 million. Mm-hmm. So by comparison, think of that. Yeah, And of course, the worst thing of all, 54,000 American soldiers' lives were lost there, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And then all the Vietnamese, many more. What about a million Vietnamese people lost their lives? Who knows? But I'm sure it's uh, untold. And some are still not known. Nobody knows where they are. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're still missing Americans. Right, that's true. But as well, but uh, yes, uh, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, well, we're sort of uh, rounding up a bit, but we have a little more time. Is there anything else that, you know, maybe we didn't cover that you think would be good to share? Or maybe uh, the people that you knew while you were there? Because it's interesting, you have these sort of ephemeral connections with people that are probably really indelible in your memory because of the whole extreme situation that you're in. Yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to go back to Quang Nai when we were there in the 90s. Uh, but wasn't able to do that and sort of wish that I had been able to see that province. <clears throat> it was interesting that uh, in that province there was uh, sort of a half-built cathedral mm-hmm. there, a huge structure that was only half-built and I'm sure never got finished, if you will. It was also interesting there were a few other American civilians in this province with me, including uh, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is somewhat fundamentalist Protestant church, uh, an American pastor of this denomination had a church there almost across the street from where I was living as Uh well. And on the front of the church, it said Tin Lan, which basically means good news. Mm -hmm. And he and his wife were there, and I always thought that was strange. Mm -hmm. Here's an American pastor, I guess, uh, proselytizing, if you will, and had a small flock that go to church there Mm -hmm. every Sunday that I observe. Uh What are they doing here in the midst of this war? Yeah. 
But we also mm-hmm. had some Mennonites come that were mm-hmm. trying to do good. And some Quakers mm-hmm. came, uh, an older couple from Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful people, who started a prosthesis center there mm-hmm. to make artificial limbs, mm-hmm. which was certainly very much needed yeah. given all the carnage from the war. Yeah. So it was interesting to see. And, of course, the other civilians in my province, I finally figured out it wasn't too hard, were CIA people. Oh. They all ro- rode Ford Broncos, uh-huh. whereas we had General Motors Scouts. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I you had tell what? That. General Motors Scouts, uh-huh. different <laughs> vehicles, oh. four-wheel drive vehicles, yeah. if you will. But I never had much contact with them. Uh-huh. It was interesting. Yeah. They, were, they were doing their thing, if you will. Yeah. And my the, the house where they lived, my interpreters used to call it, when they interpreted so, uh, something, the embassy. Mm-hmm. which I thought was very strange, as though you'd go there to get your visa or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Why did they do that? I don't know <laughs> why that, that was the interpretation yeah. that came yeah. out. Well, um, you've been listening to Under the Surface. I've been talking to David Enton, who served in the United States Agency for International Development, or what was known as, I guess it's USAID, not USAID. I've noticed you said USAID. Yes. Um, And we've reached the end of our time on the air. Thanks so much, David, for being a guest on today's show and for sharing your extraordinary experiences in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Well, thanks. I'm very happy to be here, Amy. And I'm going to leave you with a beautiful instrumental version of the song We Shall Overcome by the Silk Road Ensemble, founded by the famous celloist Yo-Yo Ma. This music was used for the soundtrack of the recent PBS documentary that we mentioned, The Vietnam War, by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. The musicians for this particular piece were Vanessa Vanon Vo and Sarah Joros. Oh.